Constructive Voices, the podcast for the construction people, with news, views and expert interviews. Hi, I'm Steve Randall and welcome to Constructive Voices. In this episode, we're talking about some exciting new training that Constructive Voices will be bringing to you very soon. It's called Beyond Biodiversity Net Gain and will feature some of the leading experts in the field. Claire Wansbury, multi-award winning ecologist, Mark Cocker, a multi-award winning author and Guardian journalist, Jane Finlay, immediate past president of the Landscape Institute, Jane Manley, CEO of the Earth Trust, Ben Stansfield, environmental lawyer, Rachel Blount, principal ecologist, Paula Wakelin, associate ecologist, Dr. Carol Williams from the Bat Conservation Trust, Dr. Kate Vincent, Associate Director within the Ecology Practice at Atkins, and Ellen Davies, Senior Ecologist. In this episode, we'll be speaking to one of them, Claire Wansbury, and finding out why this training is such an important issue for the construction industry. And he's back. Peter Finn, Pete the Builder, is here too. This is Constructive Voices. So here we are. Peter Finn is here. It's been, it's been a little while, Pete. You've been busy on manoeuvres, but you're, you're back from filming and all kinds of things. And we have a very important episode. Yeah, Steve, great to, great to chat again. Um, lots happening in my life and lots happening in the world. And again, that's what we're doing today. We're going to be approaching that big subject that is out there, um, biodiversity, and also how we can use biodiversity to improve our climate change battle. And the whole focus of this is new legislation, which is being introduced in the UK, specifically in England. But of course, as we know, when one major economy introduces new rules, particularly on things relating to the environment, it very often forms the basis for what comes next in countries around the world. And so the new legislation being introduced in England means that developers will be required to deliver a 10% biodiversity net gain on new housing, industrial or commercial developments. That's a minimum 10%. And they'll have to show how they've assessed the habitat, how they propose to help nature with the biodiversity net gain proposals they're putting through. And this will be for large developers from November 2023 and then for small sites from April 2024. So this is something that will affect pretty much every developer, everybody wanting to do construction in England from this year. And then we'll see it ripple around the world, I'm sure. You've hit the nail on the head there, what you've said. It without doubt will ripple across to neighbouring areas and beyond in terms of, you know, this most likely will will transcend to, to pretty much every country in the world. So what they're looking for is 10% BNG, biodiversity net gain. It's something that everybody within the industry needs now to start understand properly and to get their head around what does that actually mean for them. It's not only the business professionals, it's it's the man on the ground, it's the developer, it's it's everybody involved in construction. And again, without the shadow of a doubt, this is a positive step in the right direction, but it can mean some kind of complications and it can mean that people are going to have to change but as, as our, our guest today, Claire Wansbury, is, is going to discuss with us, this is not just a case of ticking a few boxes. This is not just business as usual with a few more trees. This is definitely something that we need to 
fully buy in with and fully get our heads around. Starting with the UK, people are really going to have to jump on board this very quickly um, and get their heads really deeply into this subject, understand it. And then when they do fully understand it, they're going to be able to then come on board and do the right thing in a way that doesn't hurt or affect their business and also you know, uh, contributes to the greater good of ensuring that we all become more uh, aware of biodiversity. We're trying to make this easy for people. We're trying to help people and businesses come on board. So we're going to have a training series set up over a set of modules that are done in bite-sized pieces so that people can learn while they're working. It's not one big commitment that they've got to make. They can learn it in, in bite-sized pieces and we're breaking it down in, in a way that comes. We'll have certifications at the end of that as well. Um, and again, it will basically empower businesses and empower people within our industry to understand uh, what's going to be expected of them when it comes to BNG and to be prepared for it. And, and again, if this is something that is not introduced in your country at the moment, you will be ahead of the game by getting on board and understanding this. And you know what? Again, it's all about habits and it's all about just being prepared as we possibly can going forward. So we have a really, really good interview coming up now with Claire. Really interested in seeing what she's got to say. And again, we'll pop in at the end and maybe discuss a little bit more about the training. Constructive Voices. I'm Jackie DeBurka and I'm here for Constructive Voices with probably our favourite guest ever. This is Claire Wansbury that I'm talking to today. Claire has given an immense amount of her time in the last couple of years to various episodes and roundtables and is now working closely. In fact, really, she's the main person creating a training series, which is going to be aimed around the law that's coming into the UK in November of 2023 biodiversity net gain. We've named the training series Beyond Biodiversity Net Gain for the psychological impact we're hoping it will have and with the wider impact of the initiative itself in the UK. Claire, let me ask you first of all, for those who haven't heard you before, let me ask you just to give a little introduction about who you are and your professional achievements. Thank you, Jackie. So I'm Claire Wansbury. I'm an Atkins Fellow and Technical Director working at Atkins, which is a large engineering and environmental consultancy part of SNC-Lavalin. I've got over 30 years experience as an ecologist, but over the last decade, I've worked increasingly on the more positive novel ways of looking at how we interact with nature. So biodiversity net gain is a key part of that, but also other ways like natural capital valuation, where we explore the many benefits that working with nature provides to our human society and economy. As well as having over 30 years experience, I've also been fortunate to have achieved various awards for my work. So in 2020, I was my professional institute, SIEMS, member of the year. And this year, 2023, I've been awarded the status of the Society for the Environment's Environmental Professional of the Year, which is obviously just a wonderful achievement. So I'm, I'm really, really pleased about that. I was absolutely delighted, Claire, when I saw that announcement, obviously, that you posted on LinkedIn. And I'm sure there's a lot of people who deserve accolades during this time. But I did feel very, very proud. <laughs> Sounds like I'm your mother or something. You know, I did feel very proud because you've been working so closely with us and giving, obviously, a lot of your time and 
massive congratulations. But that's not it. It's not over yet this year. You have another nomination waiting possibly for another award. You never know. <laughs> yes, thank you. See what happens with that one. Um, that's the Every Woman in Transportation and Logistics. They run an awards ceremony for several years now, but this year they've introduced a new award for sustainability champion. So I'm delighted to be on the shortlist for that. But also, I think it's amazing that it's not just a specialist topic where those doing the work give themselves awards that were it's also being recognized just how important environmental sustainability is to our wider society absolutely i was also really happy to hear that because you know it's just nice hard evidence that an award like that you know is taking on board exactly the direction that the world is going in and that recognition is you know very important during these times you mentioned claire just briefly during your introduction about yourself that you've been more specialised recently in biodiversity and how it affects society, people and benefits them and also the economic benefits. Let's let's chat about that because mm-hmm. I think that's all important in motivating people to get on board with not just ticking those boxes when the law comes in in November. Definitely. And I think it's something that we've really seen a step change over the last few years where people have recognised that there's a lot of awareness that we're living in a time of a climate change emergency, but also we're living through a time of nature loss emergency. And I think one of the starkest things for me is the statistic that scientists who've studied this are saying species are becoming extinct across the world at a rate that this planet hasn't seen since the time the dinosaurs became extinct. So we're living through a global extinction event, Hmm. but it's the first one ever that's been caused by a single species, us. So that's the, the seriousness, the, if you like, the doom and gloom, but also we're in a time where people are recognizing that looking after nature isn't just a nice to have about nature. This is looking after things that directly underpin our own individual and community health and well-being and our economy. So it's not a nice to have. Looking after nature is sound business sense. I would absolutely agree, Claire. And I think that, you know, one of the people who's involved in this training with us and also did a great interview earlier this year with me, Jane Findlay, who's the immediate past president of the Landscape Institute, you know, her specialism during that interview and obviously in general is focusing on on the link with our own health and biodiversity um, and obviously climate change, all of it being interlinked, which I think the more people that understand that and take it on board, the quicker people will realise exactly what you've said, Claire, that nature is not just a nice to have. Absolutely, yes. I think... It's brilliant Jane's been able to share her experience because she's been involved in some quite deep research around this topic of people's health and access to, but also engagement with nature. And I think I've seen so many people who work in the construction industry will say, oh yes, you know, I I feed the birds in my back garden. And there's that light bulb moment where people are going, 
I don't have to feel bad for caring about nature in a professional context. I'm not doing anything that's somehow against what's normal. This has to become normal, that nature is everybody's business. Absolutely. So, Claire, for, for some of our listeners might have you know heard earlier episodes and linked into the, the roundtable we did at the end of January, but for those who haven't, can you explain the link between biodiversity and climate change, please? Sure. Climate change is something, again, that we are causing and it's affecting nature. Some of the key species drivers for extinction are related to climate change, but also there's a lot of other things that we are doing that are contributing to that loss of biodiversity. So it's not just climate change. We can't just think, oh, well, we'll deal with climate change and that'll sort out nature loss. It doesn't work like that. There's other drivers as well, so particularly land use change. And the construction industry is a part of that. On the positive side, if we can look at how we work with nature and improve it, nature can be our greatest ally in the fight against climate change. Again, it doesn't mean that by doing things like habitat restoration, we can stop climate change. We have to do all of the important work about controlling our carbon footprint and changing the way we do huge amounts of what we do across industry, across society. But if we work with nature, we can find those initiatives where we provide multiple benefits. Something I like to use to explain this is just saying, if we work with nature, we are working with the ultimate multitasker. Because if you need to build something to protect an area from flood risk, if you use a grey infrastructure approach, hopefully you create something that will solve that problem. And that's great. But if it's possible to bring blue and green infrastructure habitat interventions instead of grey infrastructure or as part of the design, then those areas of new and enhanced habitat aren't just solving that one problem. They can also be there providing new areas for pollinators to live in and other wildlife, areas for people to go for recreation, that health and well-being benefit. So it's recognising that nature can be on our side. Which I think nature really just does does really want to be on our side <laughs> when we when we give it the opportunity. For example, at the the weekend, I went to a, a a city not far from where I am. You know, just a view somewhere not too far away. So, and there I saw the beautiful community gardens. Obviously, with people be able to you know meet each other socially and grow their vegetables. And as you said earlier on about people feeding the birds in the back garden, you know, you've got that thing. It's 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 not just observing. It's not a nice to have. It's interacting. Mm-hmm. Definitely, yes. So, Claire, one, one question I have. Obviously, 30 years as an ecologist and, you know, you've a whole range of massively imp- impressive achievements. How do you feel and your colleagues and people, you know, that you interact with in business and I guess privately as well, how do you feel about the immense accel- acceleration that we've observed over the last few years? Um, are you thinking in terms of the the harm that we're starting to see yes directly yes. happening yeah i can't apologize for using dramatic language it's scary it's terrifying a lot of the scientific predictions are rightly 
sort of cautious in how quickly we could see things like climate change affecting us. But now we're seeing things happening. And actually that makes sense because none of this is going to happen in a sort of steady, gradual process. Climate change is about suddenly you start to see the extreme events happening more often. So the once in a hundred year storm event happens much more often. The extreme heat, the extreme cold, those happen more often. And thinking about biodiversity loss and particularly the loss of species, what's happening is obviously in nature, new species evolve and species become extinct. But the rate of extinction is so much higher than the loss. And what you start to see is rather than just thinking, oh, well, it's it's a long, long list of species and it's gradually getting shorter. When you start to lose a critical key species from an area, that in itself has knock-on implications. So, yeah, it, it's severe, it's happening now, and it just emphasises that action needs to be fast because we need to turn the corner. One of the things that's come through the work from the United Nations is the concept of this being the decade of ecosystem restoration, where we stop being on a trajectory of decline and turn the corner so that the gains start to outweigh the losses and we're in the recovery stage for nature, um, something that gets referred to as the nature-positive future. So carbon net zero we're looking for society to change so that we're slowing and eventually stopping Anthropocene climate change. Nature positive future, that's actually not just about slowing and stopping something happening. So much has happened already. We need to be reversing that harm. Definitely. And one of the things that I read sadly over coffee this morning was the heat wave in India, where according to the Guardian newspaper, that at this stage, for sure, by the time we aired this episode in, in just under a week's time, you know, the figures probably will be different. But right now, today, it's 96 people uh, are reported dead from heat ag- aggravated conditions. There is some talk that it may not only be heat, it may also be linked to contaminated water as well, Claire. But of course, as you said earlier on, the events are just happening so much more frequently now. Yes, and that's where it really brings it home to you that there's these sort of global pictures, but actually these are where it's affecting people, local communities. These are real people. These are individual tragedies. These aren't just numbers on a list. So, yes, if if we don't act, these aren't about theoretical consequences. This is about averting tragedies happening more and more often. I think the role of the built environment, Claire, is, you know, it's of course there's so many different aspects, you know, farming being one of the huge ones as well, but we're all involved, me as a media person, you obviously as a ecologist and, and a professional around the built environment. Let's just discuss, Claire, exactly how much can be contributed and obviously the harm that's happened up to date, but at the same time, not just reversing, as you said, but making it into a nature-positive situation in a pretty short period of time because there's only seven years left of this decade. 
yes, that's quite daunting. But also, it should be exciting because of those additional benefits. So if you think about, say, something like a new housing development, we know that well-designed, the green setting, the habitats that are protected, created and enhanced, contribute so much to the placemaking of new community. It makes it a nicer place to live. It's that simple. And again, if somebody's standing back from those benefits and thinking, well, I'm running a business, then that has a direct benefit to the the value and therefore the pricing of the houses that are created. So it really is a win-win situation. And also, this isn't about doing things that nobody's ever tried before. We know how to do this. Obviously, biodiversity net gain, this is a new approach, but actually it's been piloted and tested. So we've got plenty of case studies to learn from and it can be done. So it's not about saying do things nobody else has ever tried before. There's experience out there to share. And I think that's one of the things that's been really good about the series of podcasts and other sessions that Constructive Voices has been working on is it just shows the passion of people who've been engaged with this. They want to share. They want other people to learn from it. Absolutely, Claire. I mean, it's a huge opportunity, you know, as you know very well, because you've been along a fair bit of the journey with us. You know, we were born just over two years ago. So it's a huge opportunity to be able to do something with what we formed two years ago and obviously has grown and developed and, and it's, you know, wonderful to be able to help out, obviously, a little bit. Talk to me, Claire, about the, you know, about the perception of the law itself, you know, from your perspective, your your professional perspective, and what you see, Claire, as the, maybe the downsides, but also the upsides of what can happen. Sure. So in England, we're about to see the secondary legislation coming through later this year to make biodiversity net gain mandatory on works that require planning permission under the Town and Country Planning Act. And this is requiring a 10% biodiversity net gain. So basically, if there's a site with habitat on it, then you use a metric to calculate a a single figure, which is very strange for an ecologist trying to turn nature into one number. And obviously that can't capture everything about nature. It's part of a wider assessment. But that number has to be 10% bigger after development than it was before. And I mentioned there's experience out there to share. So there's knowledge there. There's some really good guidance that can be downloaded free from the internet to help from DEFRA and from resources like SIGN, the Chartered Institute of Ecology and Environmental Management. So the guidance is out there. With law, I think the challenges are around having a change like this, which is a big change from business as usual, suddenly affecting a very large number of planning applications. So it's a lot for developers to get their head around. It's a lot for the local planning authorities to get their head around. You know, there will be challenges embedding a new system. But the bottom line is it's going to have multiple benefits. The benefits will outweigh the costs, definitely, for our society. So it's it's something new. And I think it makes sense to make it mandatory. 
because otherwise there's the risk that actually you get the situation where the organisations who do it can actually be at a disadvantage to those who just want to keep going with business as usual. And it needs to be an industry-wide change, so it's great to see it coming through in this way. Definitely. Now, one one thing that comes into my mind, Claire, is of course it's going to, you know, affect obvious um, pe- people in particular job roles across the various sectors of the built environment. But what about the people who are maybe a little bit more in the back office, but are still, you know, part and parcel of a development being developed, obviously being planned and, and being built? Do you feel that? there's going to be an interest or um, a necessity for people who are maybe not so much at the front line to learn more about it? I think so. I think there'll be an interest because this is genuinely something novel, but also it's very positive. So the concept of saying, well, here's your business as usual scheme, it's going to end up better for nature. And that's, that's nice. People, I know audiences that I've spoken to, people love to hear the stories about saying, look, here's the, the area that's been set aside and here's all the different pollinators and other species that have been found to start using it. And again, that thing around people's well-being. Actually, if you've got people working, say, just in the, the site office on a building site, where the companies involved have said, right, we're just going to put, um, really simple example, putting some wildflower planters outside the office. The feedback is so positive about that. It's lovely to hear the stories. And also there's something about being very careful not to assume this is somebody else's problem, that it's going to be, you know, oh, that's for the designers to worry about. Because actually when people get physically onto the building site, that's where it's going to be vital that the commitments that were made about which areas of habitat are going to be retained, protected, enhanced, and how new ones are going to be created, those have to be delivered on site. So actually, everybody's involved. Everyone who's saying, well, I just work in, say, procurement, well, procurement teams will need to understand this because it'll mean making sure that what's delivered on site, say, an area of grassland, is the right type of grass and it's got those native species in the wildflower species. So bringing a lot of this new knowledge to people really across the industry. I think I think it's quite fascinating because I imagine, you know, some of those people who are maybe considered to be, it's a horrible thing to say, but unfortunately that's how, how I suppose a lot of businesses work, you know, maybe not, not considered quite as important as we'll say an ecologist like yourself or an architect or like a site manager or something. But at a time like this, I think they will be considered more important because they'll be able to embrace and be very much part of decisions that are going to be really important further down the line. Absolutely, yes. It's We, we can't be thinking in the short term anymore because we will all benefit from this step change this turn in the corner to using biodiversity net gain as one of the tools in the toolkit that helps us get this nature positive future where then we all start to see the benefits from it. Obviously you will have experienced uh, even though you know we're, we're waiting on 
the, the law to be properly rolled out in November, but you would have experienced in your work some projects that you're especially proud of that are already, you know, like leading the way. Would you like to talk us through any particular project that is a good indicator of how we all hope this will go? Sure. Um, I'm thinking, I'll think of a couple. One is East West Rail 2, which is a rail upgrade and also restoration of rail along a section of abandoned rail um, around the Milton Keynes area. And that's an example where the East West Rail Alliance, who are doing the work, which includes network rail, made a voluntary commitment to a 10% biodiversity net gain. And I've been involved in that project throughout. And the thing that's really struck me is the thing I touched on earlier about the importance of that attitude of people on site, that they take ownership, that, and that's really happened there. And everybody's been constantly challenging themselves to say, where can we save more habitat? So the performance of that project so much of it is down to people saying, actually, no, we can we can save. We thought we might need to lose that bit of scrub, but we can keep it. So we're going to. So I know on some projects, you can see a situation where large swathes of habitat are cleared, and then later it turns out, actually, they didn't need to be cleared. But people do it sort of to make sure they've got all the working area ready day one. and. That's becoming less common. East West Rail 2, that's a great example where that was absolutely not the approach taken. And that sort of thinking, it's actually, it's cost effective for the project as well. Because clearing an area of habitat that didn't need to be cleared, there's a cost of the staff time doing that. And when biodiversity net gain becomes mandatory, there'd then be a direct cost as well from having to do additional compensation for that loss. So there's something there around the mindset. Another, not a development project, but a, a landowner that we've worked with over the last few years is the Spain, Spain's Hall Estate in Essex. And we've done some work supporting them, looking at their land, biodiversity net gain, but also in a wider natural capital sense, looking at all of the benefits it provides to the local community. And the estate are really committed to doing the good things themselves and they describe it as moving from a food-first to a nature-first strategy. So not saying we're not going to bother producing food anymore, that's so important, but saying where can we bring nature in around it. And hopefully that's the sort of landowner who can then, their good work will be funded through approaches like biodiversity net gain to make sure that that's actually a viable approach for their businesses. But Spain's Hall is a wonderful example. Um, one of the things I love is they've done some work to reduce the flood risks to the village that's immediately downstream of them. And they did some experimenting with getting people to do sort of nature-based solutions where natural flood management, where they put leaky dams into a stream to slow the watercourse using logs and things like that. But on part of their land, they've got an enclosure where they've reintroduced beavers. And you won't be surprised probably to hear that the beavers do a much better job 
than people do at this because people put these features in and over time they become less effective. But the beavers are doing the maintenance as well. So when if the dam weakens a bit, they'll go and fix it and maybe do a little bit more. So that sort of positive long-term thinking on development projects and among landowners, these are where you've got these really strong amazing case studies that other people can learn from. Yeah, no, I'm smiling here. You know, we're <laughs> recording this on a Monday morning and I'm smiling because it's a wonderful vision to think of the beavers beavering away, basically. Yes, isn't absolutely. It? <laughs> so that's, yeah, that's that's fantastic to hear about that estate. Um, how do we spell the estate for people who aren't like familiar with Essex so people can take a look? Sure. So it's Spain's, as in the country Spain, but without an apostrophe, Spain's Hall okay. estate Perfect. in Essex. And they have a website okay. where Fantastic. they talk about the estate, but they also share their knowledge and their experience. So um, if people want to look it up, please do. Um, mm-hmm. They do occasionally run visits. So um, there is the opportunity for people to book and go and see. I'm beginning to sound like an advert for it now, <laughs> but that's because it's such an amazing thing to sure. see. Obviously, obviously, the people behind it, they do deserve that recognition. So that's OK. You've been a short, <laughs> a short advertisement for them. <laughs> so listen, going, going back to the training, how do you feel, like, for example, architects, how do you feel that they're going to be challenged and opportunities presented by the law? And in, in what sense do you think the training that we're developing together could, could maybe help? I think it certainly will help because... Um, not everybody needs to know all of the details of the maths of the metric and the things that an ecologist will need to learn to go out on site and do the surveys and things. But the mindset is something everybody needs to get. So for architects, there's the amazing opportunities of those win-win situations, the positives that you can get through working with nature. There's also the, the challenge which I think is a, a real one, which some people who are architects and other designers will simply be listening and thinking, nothing she's telling me is new, I do this already, because there are brilliant people out there who are doing this already. But I think one of the key things is not looking at a development site as a blank canvas, as if the designer simply has a sheet of paper And they can put the road in and they can put the housing or the warehouses or whatever and then sort of fill in some little greeny bits around the edges. It's so important to look at what's on site already and say, where are the the valuable bits that we should really be looking after and working around? Where can we create linkages so wildlife can move through the site and join adjacent areas so it's permeability for wildlife as well as for people. But also that thing about protecting what's there already. There's a concept called the mitigation hierarchy, which is exactly about this, which is we're going, I know we're going to have a session just on that single concept. Because it's just about stopping and thinking, what can we keep? What's essential to keep? What else can we keep? How do we work around it? What can we enhance? So I think that's the key thing that's going to be a challenge to what for some is still business as usual. 
Sure, of course, as you say, and you're saying that I picked up on a while back was it's not just business as usual and a few more trees, which I think, <laughs> you know, <laughs> really does make the point, obviously. So, yeah, I guess like it is what we're hoping to achieve, uh, you know, that you and I have discussed, obviously, without being recorded, you know, we're really hoping to achieve that we can help um, support those who want to embrace this and give them that sort of like more fluent foundations that, you know, okay, they may not be an ecologist who has to go and do all those very specific things, but they're still important in the, you know, in this great time in history, they're mm-hmm. still going to be playing an important role. And therefore what we're trying to do with the series, which will give a lot of the nitty gritty that is necessary to some people in the built environment, but will also give some, you know, very interesting episodes stroke <laughs> stroke sessions with people like that we mentioned before Jane Findlay obviously from you know the Landscape Institute immediate past president who does focus very much on, on the link between biodiversity and our own health but we're also going to look at different case studies uh, that you know are great examples just like the Spain's Hall Estate that you just mentioned that we won't advertise them again now <laughs> <laughs> Um, so we're trying to get a blend between, you know, between the nitty gritty and some of those shining light examples that we, we feel Claire, don't we, that, that they will hopefully be kind of digested by people and therefore mm-hmm. bring that into their conscious and subconscious as they go about then their work in the, the weeks and the months after they've digested the training. Yes, absolutely. We're very, very lucky to have some of the people that we have involved, well, everybody is is brilliant. Let's talk about Jane Findlay in a little bit more detail, first of all, as we've mentioned her, and then we'll 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 talk about the, some of the other people who have also got involved and bring their own specific story and expertise to the training that we're developing. Sure. So Jane, as you mentioned earlier, is the past president of the Landscape Institute. She's the sort of designer that I mentioned who listens to this and is actually saying this isn't new to her because she's already doing it. And I think for landscape designers, it's one of the disciplines where you've got that sense of placemaking is so strong among them as a group. And also you're already seeing people who are looking for those opportunities to bring nature into new built development. So her being able to share her expertise has really been amazing and she's an inspiring person to listen to as well. She's a wonderful speaker, Claire, like yourself like yourself, obviously, and you know, she she really is um very driven to to share her messages also, you know? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um and we have another Jane, <laughs> also who's who's been involved previously with us. Um, that's Jane Manley, who's the CEO of Earth Trust. Another very inspirational woman, Claire. I think. Absolutely yes. I've been fortunate to go to the Earth Trust site in Oxfordshire, and they really are pioneers. They've got in their set of buildings. They've got uh, an eco building, which they opened formally last year, which has got every construction feature you could think of to make it environmentally friendly, environmentally positive. And 
that sort of where you've got people who aren't just talking about these things as important, they're actually doing them. It just adds so much weight to the message. And I know they were one of the providers of one of the first attempts to do a housing project where biodiversity net gain was delivered because they provided a site which was used for habitat creation to balance and go beyond balancing the losses that were happening on happening on a development site. So they've been sort of there from the site to try start trialing it. And also um I know that the Earth Trust are really committed to the importance of nature for people. They do a lot of work there. So Jane brings all that experience and you know just a lifetime of work with nature and with people to be part of making a positive difference. Yeah, I, I, I have to say I found her, you know, when we've when we've spoken um sometimes off off record and other times obviously on the record. She's, you know, definitely very, very inspirational. Um we also have some other of your colleagues involved whom I don't know as well as you do. And we have lots of other people who are involved that we can't announce at the moment. But we're going to just go through some of them today. So Kate Vincent also is one of your colleagues. Claire, do you want to describe a little bit Kate's background and specialities? Sure. So Kate's another ecologist. Um, she's done, like me, all sorts of different ecology. She did. She actually did early research on urban wildlife and things like house sparrows. So she's she's got a real te- depth of knowledge, but she's also one of the people who's been involved in biodiversity net gain since the very early trials of biodiversity offsetting. So she's got a real depth of scientific knowledge and also she's a very practical person in helping developers unpick what it means for them. And both developers and also organisations like local planning authorities, so how it's going to work in practice. And her session is going to be focused on the processes and the paperwork, which does not sound remotely exciting, but actually getting the paperwork right is going to be essential. So having Kate just talk calmly through the sort of things that somebody like a project manager is going to need to have their head around just to make sure that they've got things planned, things happen at the right stages. That's the sort of more practical side of the training where it's just going to be a quick insight section that helps handhold people through if they're totally new to this or if they've been doing it a bit, picking up tips from it. So I think that's going to be a really good session with Kate. Fantastic. And so her knowledge and her session, obviously, yeah, really important to the likes of project managers, local planning officers, and anybody, I suppose, who's in a like a, in that sort of decision-making capacity who has to get those things right as early on as possible, no? Yes, absolutely. Okay, that's brilliant. And Ellen Davies, another one of your colleagues, Claire. Yes, Ellen, again, she's been working on all sorts of different biodiversity net gain projects. And she's going to be looking at strategic significance, which it's a term that will be recognised by people who've already had to deal with this. 
because this is actually looking at if you can't deliver biodiversity net gain on a site, where should you look to find offsetting sites where they're going to deliver the most benefit to the local communities and nature? So that'll be useful for designers. But also, again, those early days project management, just thinking if we can't do everything on site, where should we be looking off site? But also, that strategic significance gives you the opportunity to think, well, whatever, where we've got habitat creation on a site, how do we prioritise? What do we target? And that session, Ellen, will really be helping with unpicking that and just starting to think, what do we do where for maximum added value? Fantastic. Now, I'm, I'm going to also mention your other two colleagues and then, and then we'll focus on some of the people who are obviously not working directly with you. But Rachel Blount, I actually know her a little bit from Twitter. We've, we've had some interactions on Twitter and she also seems very, very passionate about what, what she's doing, her work. And then she has specialist knowledge. I think it's about bats and beavers, if I remember correctly. Yes. Um, Rachel's actually, she's doing a part-time um, master's of research on beaver reintroduction alongside her work for Atkins. So she's incredibly busy, um, but very committed and She's worked a lot on biodiversity net gain projects, including some work that we've done looking at scenarios. So thinking, you've got an area of land, what can you do with it to maximise the benefits, to, to score the most points in the metric, but not necessarily just to let the sort of the numbers drive the design. It's so important to work with nature and for nature to drive the design. So looking at designing to deliver that 10% net gain and deliver those wider benefits. And that's what she's going to be focusing on is, I think, that sort of on-site design and the principles to follow. Fantastic. And the final colleague who also even though I don't know her in the same way as obviously having interacted a little bit with Rachel on Twitter, is Paula Wakeland, who also seems really inspirational and has a lovely story about how she really connected with wildlife and nature uh, as she grew up in suburban Liverpool, <laughs> which is interesting because that, that's something we'll talk about later on, obviously, the role of cities. But Paula is what, what is termed a habitats regulations assessment specialist. Yes, um, she's got a lot of knowledge on that. So that's actually a type of assessment that's um, quite different from biodiversity net gain. It's looking at the the sites that are covered by international designations and doing assessment to look at any risks of impacts on those and how to avoid them. So she's got very detailed knowledge of that. She's also interested in novel ways of looking at nature. So things like rewilding and she'll be talking about finding off-site opportunities for habitat works. So I don't yet know whether she'll be touching on rewilding, but I'd be surprised if she doesn't give it a mention. <laughs> oh, I hope she does. It's a, a fascinating subject also. Now, another person who is not a direct colleague of yours, but also I had a fascinating conversation with her 
Uh, and I'm very much looking forward to her session as well. And that's Dr. Carol Williams uh, from the Bat Conservation Trust. And she's really going to focus on bats as indicators, I suppose, if you were just to like summarize her role. Claire, talk, talk a little bit about Carol. One of the downsides of the biodiversity net gain metric-based approach is it can all only look at habitats. So that's potentially a risk that if people just use the spreadsheet and don't think about what's actually going on on and around the site, then species like bats could get forgotten. And that's the sort of issue that Carol will be exploring. And she's coming, again, she's another person who's coming with a lifetime's experience working for um, government organisations for nature conservation and now um, she's worked for a long time for Bat Conservation Trust. And I think it's important with someone like Carol, she's bringing the, the importance of thinking about species like bats, but not just thinking about it as a sort of a constraint, something to work around. Again, it's those opportunities to create something that's really positive and how the health of the bat populations and the different species you get is a really good indicator of wider biodiversity. So I think she'll do a great job of bringing all of that thinking together. I definitely found my initial research conversation with her really fascinating. And I felt like I learned, you know, quite a lot from her within whatever it was, half an hour, 40 minutes. So I think that that'll be super useful. Now, whether we may or may not enjoy the law and the nitty gritty that obviously comes with, you know, with the law when it's fully rolled out in November, we, mm-hmm. we have to take it on board. And we have, again, thanks to yourself, Claire, a fantastic person to do a session on that is a, lovely guy called Ben Stansfield, who's a top environmental lawyer with uh, Gowling, who's an international firm. And Ben has already done a a podcast episode with us. It was season two, episode 11. And I've had a lot of super positive feedback since that went live, maybe about five or six weeks ago at this stage, that a lot of people found even just that podcast episode of Ben's extremely useful. Yes, um, Ben's a really good speaker and it's useful that he's bringing practical experience of the legal side of biodiversity net gain because it's going to be important. This is going to be mandatory. So people will need to make sure it's not just enough to have good intentions. People will need to follow the rules, have legal agreements in place in some cases to make sure that however well-meaning something is, it doesn't get sort of tripped up by, again, not having the paperwork quite right. So I think having his insights will be really valuable to the listeners. I believe so. Now, as as I mentioned earlier, there are people in in the background that we can't announce every at the moment because obviously we have to formalise with, with these people that we're referring to, but we can't mention names. But I was over the moon to connect with Mark Cocker, having read an amazing article of his in the Guardian newspaper a few months ago. And I reached out to Mark and I'm more than delighted to say that this multi-award winning author and Guardian journalist who's passionate doesn't probably even really, (laughs) he probably doesn't describe (laughs) Mark's role and how he is about communicating nature to humans and 
bridging that that gap that exists, unfortunately, for some people. And Mark is going to be our person to introduce, you know, the, the, the various modules in his own way. Obviously, a non-industry person, meaning he doesn't work with the built environment, but he very much appreciates the role of the training that we're, you know, collaborating on together, Claire, and that we're producing together. Um, and it turns out that originally when I told you about Mark, you obviously knew who he was, but you hadn't done the research as, as I did, obviously, to decide whether I should re- reach out to him. But it does turn out that after all, you've got a book of Mark's you mentioned to me. Yes, I've, I've got a book on my bookcase called Birds Britannica, um, which Mark was one of the co-authors of. And it's literally looking at all the different bird species that we've got in this country. But we're used to looking at bird books where you've got sort of how to identify them and a bit about where, where they live, stuff like that. Whereas Birds Britannica, it's exploring things like all of the, in some cases, folklore around different species, all the different names people have got in different parts of the country. And this is some of the stuff that we actually, as a society, if we lose touch with nature, you suddenly find that we're losing things like that. We're losing the fact that the lapwing is a bird that there's, Lots of different names for it all around the country. Um, one of my favourites is the peewit, which is a word that sounds almost exactly like the call that the lapwing makes. So it's a really easy one to remember. That sort of inspiration and getting people to look at the excitement of nature. I think it's, it's brilliant he's bringing this to the conversation because actually there's a risk that we get um i hope we won't but if we get two heads down looking at the metrics and the new law and all of this and we forget to just sit back and think it's great to be talking about the natural environment that's it absolutely and you know i think you really have hit the nail on the head with mark you know he is he feels himself, you know, his role or one of his roles in life is to be that person who's communicating and triggering, triggering, you know, that passion and excitement in people who perhaps kind of had it like maybe as a child or something. And again, we're talking about depending on age groups and education, whether they would have been old enough like myself to have gone on nature walks, <laughs> which apparently in Ireland, they don't do that with, with the kids any longer at all, which is, you know, a huge shame. Um, but Mark basically also does nature walks just again giving the guy a little bit of an advertisement because it's another string to his bow he does do nature walks um i think he does a few hours with you know people can book him and uh, obviously go out on habitats that are, are, are around his location in the uk so that must be very magical i'd imagine to go on a walk with mark and explore nature with with his incredible guidance Yes, it, it is inspiring when you're out with somebody who's got that depth of knowledge and who's good at sharing it. For sure. So that's your that's your advertisement on Mark <laughs> for today. Um, so yeah, just going back into because of course we can get lost in in you know some of the things that are are exciting about what we we are creating together. But going back into the the reality of the whole situation, um, talk Claire a little bit of, from your you know, professional knowledge about the role of cities and all of this. Cities and nature, the concept of what I know some of my colleagues and I like to call starting to create nature-positive placemaking. 
it's it's vital because cities, urban areas are expanding so much. So potentially that's a cause of habitat loss. You've got this density of human population. So actually this is where if you can create new areas for nature, you get that such an intense benefit of people's interaction with it contributing to their health and well-being. So it's where there's challenges, but the opportunities are kind of off the scale for doing new nature areas that are benefiting people. It's where you've got the people who in many, in some cases, have got the greatest disconnect from nature, and they're the ones who will benefit most from having new areas available to them. And it's something, it's really struck me how I've been reading for years academic papers about the importance of nature to people's well-being and the benefits of it. With the lockdowns, in the years of um, learning to cope with COVID-19, amongst all of those incredible you know, challenges and personal tragedies for so many, I don't want to suggest that this is a positive in the sense of you know, this is a positive we can take from it, so it's all all right. It's not, you know, it's a terrible, terrible time. But one of the things that it really brought home to me and many, many others is that talk about having nature near where you live and near where you work isn't just academic, isn't just theory. When people were having to limit their travel so much, having a bit of green space nearby really, really brought home to people that matters. You know, it's not just theory, it's real. People need that engagement with nature. And cities are the places where, if we get it right, we do the most good. Absolutely, Claire, I agree. And I happen to be reading um, a fabulous book, Urban Jungle, Wilding the City, by Ben Wilson, who's also the author of Metropolis, who his, his book that gained huge I, I don't know whether this is better because I can't I can't tell you that because I haven't read Metropolis but what I can tell you is it's a fascinating entertaining book but also quite surprising in terms of um what, what Ben does is bring us back into the history of various cities mm-hmm. um and it's actually so not that long ago obviously you're based in the UK and lots of you know lots of other people involved in this for the obvious reasons are, are based in the UK. It's really not that long ago when you think about it, obviously going back to around the time of the Industrial Revolution, that the landscape just will talk around London and the surrounds was was an entirely different landscape to what we have today. Mm-hmm. So Ben yes. Ben goes through not just London, New York and lots and lots of other places. I haven't finished the book yet. <laughs> and he illustrates very much so about the like what he calls the edge lands, those areas on the edge edges of cities, and how there are areas that you know, like people often look at them and think, "Oh God, that's overrun and ugly." But in fact, it's you know not like that at all. And I think that there is a level of what I'm digesting from his book. There's like a level of showing how during our lifetime, and particularly in these last few years, that people have to start to understand 
that nature being unruly is actually a really beautiful and a good thing. And there isn't, Mm -hmm. you know, this horrible need to put concrete or whatever over, you know, over so much, so much of nature. So, but he talks a lot in the book about, you know, the, the native species, the, the non-native species that were brought into areas and really, you know, he's obviously, he's stated the case for, how the city of not the future, we, we can't even call it the future, Claire, any longer. The city of almost now really needs to revert back to or be a new version of what we had to some extent around the time of the Industrial Revolution, but obviously not exactly in that format, if that makes sense. Yes. That sounds a really interesting read. I think I'm going to have to find a copy <laughs> We've done of a lot book. of ads on this podcast. We have, today. yes. But yes, Ben's book is Ur- Urban Jungle, Wilding the City. And let's end, Claire, on your vision, because you are incredibly positive whilst understanding how scary the situation is that we're living in at the moment. You are very, very positive. And with that positivity, with Beyond Biodiversity Net Game, which is the name of Hello. our training series that will be available via the Constructive Voices website in a members-only area, basically. So, in other words, it'll be available through Constructive Voices and in modular sections, more or less of 20 minutes or so, both video and audio with certificates. And so we're shaping it, Claire, with yourself and obviously the other people that you've got involved. We're shaping it to be something that, you know, people who are super busy lives and work lives can just dip in and out of and access as when they need to. And if they want to have certificates, they'll, you know, go ahead and do the small little exams at the end of each particular module. So really it means that, you know, depending on what your role and your job is, you would be able to just only maybe do four, four or five modules. There will be to begin 15 modules and we will be adding to those from November onwards as obviously we gain more knowledge after the law comes into force. So, you know, we're very excited about what we're producing. So just make a note of the fact that that will be available via the constructive-voices.com website from September. We don't have a launch date, but September onwards. Claire, I guess if the training is embraced, which we feel it will be because of how we're going to distribute it, you know, for free to certain organizations and so on, if it has the impact that we hope, at the same time, thinking about the beyond biodiversity net gain in its wider sense, how do you envisage, let's focus on your local environment, the UK and places that you're dealing with there, how do you envisage it could be by the year 2030? I hope by 2030 we're going to start noticing, not necessarily noticing things everywhere looking better, but just starting to see places you know, we're used to spotting building sites as we go past. I'd like to see people noticing nature recovery sites as they go past. So looking, going, oh, there's a new nature reserve with boards saying we can come and go for walks there. Or, oh, that was just a field and now there's a wetland area in the middle of it. That looks good. So actually starting to see signs of recovery and signs of people acting to help nature recover. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. And I think also, without talking for too long about it, I think what will be very interesting, because that's seven years that we have approximately, what will be very interesting is to see people voting with with their wallets, that perhaps people are relocating to 
developments that are far more nature positive than mm-hmm. some existing developments. And that'll be very interesting. 2050, which obviously gives us a, the guts of 27 years. What do you think we, we, we might be seeing then? I'd like to see people really noticing. So when they're out and about, but also if people have seen the numbers and the variety of birds at their bird feeder dropping, the people are seeing the numbers building up again. And wouldn't it be nice if in 2050 people are having to clean their car? If if cars <laughs> have such things in those days, if it's not all electronic, but people having to clean their car registration number plate again because yeah. the insect populations are built up, that they start getting splatted in noticeable <laughs> numbers again. That That's a very specific thing. It um, is. Not necessarily the most attractive thing. Be good to have, you know, more otters through the rivers of towns, more birds in the garden, that sort of thing. But more insects getting splatted because there are more insects out there would be a good thing. Yeah, I mean, when you mention otters, very, very quickly, in the book that I plugged earlier on, Ben Wilson, there's a gorgeous photo of otters lording it over in Singapore in 2022. Mm-hmm. So it's actually very funny you should mention that. Claire, last words about the training we're producing together. You don't have to be an ecologist. You don't have to have a depth of technical knowledge. But if you do, hopefully there'll be things for you to gain from it as well. People are passionate about sharing their experience, learning from each other, supporting each other. That's what this is all about, is a great range of people bringing different insights. If people want to dip into the whole series over their lunchtime sandwiches over a few weeks, that's great. If people want to just flick through and go, oh, that's a concept I'm not familiar with, or that I don't really get, or that sounds an interesting project, whatever's useful, they're designed to be useful. They're designed to help people as we're moving from something that's business as usual into a new, more nature-positive future. Also, I know this is talking about biodiversity net gain becoming mandatory in England, potentially similar approaches coming in in other parts of the UK. There were lessons that can be taken from this wherever you are in the world. So enjoy. You're welcome yeah. to join us. And I hope that people do enjoy listening. Yeah, absolutely. And the final words would be, you know, it's something that we didn't mention earlier on, but it has been inspired by the the law obviously coming into force in England in November of, of 2023. But that's it. That's been the inspiration for it. As you said yourself, Claire, there'll be lots of relevance for people, you know, all around the world, basically. I certainly hope so. So listen, thank you so much for giving your time again, Claire. It's been a pleasure. It's been great talking to you. This is Constructive Voices. So there we go. Claire Wansbury, multi-award winning ecologist and a fascinating interview. Um, And just one of the team of people who will be helping us deliver the training that will be available later on this year ahead of this new legislation coming in in England and then, as we say, almost certain to spread across the world in various forms. Really interesting stuff, Pete. Again, aside from anything in terms of uh, legislation that's coming in, to get to listen to somebody who has spent their life devoting their their career to a certain subject and 
to to be able to listen to them and 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 hear their their experience, their education, their passion for that subject. It's it's always a really really you know excellent thing to hear. And and Claire, without the shadow of a doubt, is one of those people. Her achievements have been. Um, acknowledged with the awards that she's received and she is nominated for more awards going forward as well so I'm so happy that we in Constructive Voices are teaming up with Claire and we're tapping into that wealth of knowledge and wealth of experience and again another another really important point is here that Claire is willing to spread this knowledge and she's doing it with us within our training series she's not doing it alone again Claire has set the bar so high with her knowledge and her expertise that we've managed to bring together a serious team of people that are also going to be contributing to our training modules that's on on back of everything else that claire has said there this bng is is definitely a subject that is coming on board biodiversity net gain it's an important subject and it's something that is absolutely relevant to us all and uh, really looking forward to constructive voices doing what we do best doing what we've set ourselves up to do which is to try and help people understand the difficult subjects and help people educate themselves upskill themselves and be ready to contribute to the construction industry in such a positive way if you follow us on social media you're going to see us we're starting to drip feed out what we've been putting together and again we're going to aim to have all of this training series put together and the modules ready to go for people from september on so look all we're saying here is come on board Get a bit of education, get some learning and, and prepare yourself, your company to be ready to approach this, this really important subject in a, in a pre-educated and, and a prepared way. So lots lots to come, Steve. As always, we've got so much stuff happening here on Constructive Voices and it's, it's really, really exciting times within the industry and really exciting times within our own little group here as well. So very, very happy to be involved. Talk again soon, Pete. Great stuff, Steve. As always, it was brilliant to chat to you. And that's all for this episode of Constructive Voices. Please take a moment to share it with others who may find it interesting. Follow or subscribe to get the latest episodes automatically on your favourite podcast app and rate and review the podcast if you can. You can also listen to the latest episode by saying, Alexa, play Constructive Voices podcast. Here's Constructive Voices. Here's the latest episode. And on our website where there's lots more information too. That's Constructive dashvoices.com don't forget the dash until next time thanks for listening you're really helping us build something we